Hello and welcome. My guest today is Justin Welsh. Justin has helped build two $50 million annual recurring revenue companies. He's built teams of 150 plus people and raised over $300 million in venture capital. But he did that all working for someone else. And in late 2018, he burned out. Now, Justin is an online writer who makes the bulk of his income through online courses and teaching others how to systematize their own content and grow online. And over the past three years, Justin's built an audience of over 290,000 people on Twitter and 340,000 people on LinkedIn. Justin clearly knows a thing or two about writing, and we spoke about it in this conversation. But we also spoke about the panic attack in 2018, late 2018, that set it all in motion. We spoke about leaving massive tips and why kindness is such an important part of his business strategy, and how creating more space leads the right things to come into your life. This was a beautiful conversation, and I'm really grateful that this one got recorded. And I am looking forward to hearing what you think about this episode on Twitter or on the YouTube comment section of this video on YouTube. Now, if you're listening on Spotify, there's currently 217 ratings that are taking place. There's 217 ratings that people have left, and I'm very grateful for those ratings. But I know that there are more than 217 people who are listening to this episode on Spotify because I've got the figures, I've got the numbers, and I see it. So if you are somebody who listens to this podcast and would like to rate this podcast or share it, share it too. If you're going to rate it, then share it too. I, this is how the podcast grows, and I would be honored if you would rate and share this episode, particularly on Spotify. If you're listening on Spotify, just it's two clicks. It's easy. It's simple. So please check a rating and please share it if you enjoy it. But enough for me. This is Justin Welsh. Justin, thank you for coming on the podcast today. I've really admired your journey and particularly because I remember you coming up on my radar on Twitter and the first thing that I noticed was you were a SaaS guy. And then about six months or a year later, it seemed like you were the LinkedIn guy. And now you're the solopreneur guy. And I just really admire the journey you've been on in such a short amount of time. So I'm excited to talk to you about your journey today, but also some unusual territory that I don't think you've covered elsewhere. So thank you for being cool, here. man. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Danny. I've, I've really enjoyed watching you grow as a podcast host and land big guests and become, you know, very well known in the industry. So congrats to you. And I'm, I'm pumped to be here, man. So thanks for having me. For sure. So when I, when I break down the journey of SaaS to LinkedIn to solopreneur, what comes to mind for you of how you've been able to niche down so specifically, but then pivot so quickly and do it so successfully from the outside looking in? I think the, the word that comes to mind is like accidental. I think that mm. a lot of people um, assume that this is like a well-orchestrated journey, which there are certainly some parts of it that are, right? I, I would be lying if I said that I, I'm not intentional with, with some of the decisions that I make in many of them. But like, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to do SaaS. And then I'm going to do LinkedIn and then I'm going to do solopreneurship and Twitter. It was more like my interests changed 
over the course of time and also what people wanted from me, or at least the indicators from my audience, my subscribers, people that talk to me on a regular basis also changed. Hmm. And I think what I've hopefully, I do a lot of things really poorly, but one thing I think I've done relatively well is find the intersection of like what people want to hear more about or learn more about and where in my life I am right now, what I like talking about and like combining those things for maximum impact. So that's sort of how I think about that journey. And when the difference is like, how do you feel the confidence to be like, all right, I'm going to go in a different direction or I'm going to slightly pivot this shit when people start, because this happens to a lot of times to content creators where Mm -hmm. people will know them as the business guy, and then they want to talk about sports. And Mm -hmm. so they might not have the confidence to navigate that chip to a different place. How did you have that confidence? I think it's an, it's a being focused on the length of the journey for the desired outcome. So, so for example, like I think a lot of people, myself included, right? Every once in a while, I find myself falling into this trap where it's like, you're talking about something and then you pivot and you talk about something else. And when you do that, what will, what will happen naturally is you'll have less engagement. You'll have less people enjoying what you write. It's, it's, it happens naturally anytime you switch. Right. Um, but I try and keep my eye on the prize long-term knowing that, Hey, if I cut 50% of my audience, which of course I, I don't want to do, right. I hope that doesn't happen. But if it does happen, like in another year or two years, I'll be back talking about something different. And I think of this as like a decades long journey, not like mm-hmm. what happens on Thursday compared to Wednesday is, is irrelevant to me. And so, um, knowing that I can always build back, that I understand the fundamental basics behind growing an audience, talking about things I'm passionate about keeps me confident. Um, again, I don't think of this as like, a, this isn't a money grab. This isn't like an attention grab. This is like a 20 year journey I'm ready to go on. And I'm excited by all the different directions that it could possibly go. And I feel confident that I know how to do those things. So that's, that's how I think about it. When did you start the long-term mindset and thinking in decades rather than Mm. days, weeks, or months? Probably not until probably mid 2020. I think like in the first two years of what was going on or a year and a half, I, I might get some dates wrong here as I think back through the journey. But like, as I think about the first half, I didn't really know what was going on and I didn't really know what I was doing and I didn't really know where I was going. It was more like I was flying by the seat of my pants. It was like building a startup. It was like, oh, I think this could be cool. I think this could be big, but this could also be nothing. It could also go away in a heartbeat. And so I was just building the the steps as I was climbing them. And that was fun, but nerve wracking. And I think like mid 2020, and it might've been early 2021, I started to get really predictable traction in terms of uh, engagement and revenue. And so I started to be able to tie those two things together. Okay. Engagements here, revenues here, engagements here, revenues here, you know, here, here. And, and it started to be really, really predictable. So when I saw that, I thought if this can continue to grow and compound at the rate that it's currently doing over the course of many years, this looks really interesting. And so that's when I started thinking like, all right, not how do I churn out more content or churn out more products, but like, how do I set my brand up for long-term growth around a very specific idea? And I'm still putting those pieces together. They're certainly not in place yet. Hmm. It, it's funny because it's, it's like you often think that long-term mindsets come from, all right, like, let me think about how do I think, how do, 
long-term mindsets come from the, the place of I'm going to set out to achieve a long-term mindset versus I'm going to act without perfect knowledge in a short-term mindset. And that's going to lead to a longer term mindset. Does that make sense to you? Like that, that's a, does a novel sense. way of thinking about it for me. Yeah. I think planning is always a good thing, right? Like if I could go back in time, I, I probably, I, I always say if I could go back in time, I would change something, but I don't think I would. Cause I've really enjoyed the, the, the journey and I don't think that I'd want to really tinker with it. But like, let's just speak hypothetically. If I could go back and say, Oh, having a 10 year plan, the day I started creating content or whatever could, could have been helpful. Probably. I think it's good to know the different directions that you could possibly go, but plans change, right? Like things don't go as according to plan. So every time that I sit down to think like long-term, I don't think like this is the journey I'm going to build. I think like here are five different ways this could go. Three could be great and two could be really poor. And it's just like, here are some check-in points that I should probably have along this long journey to make sure that I'm not going down the two that I think could fail. And instead I'm heading towards these three that I think could be really successful. And so, yeah, like you can set out with a long-term mindset, but I don't know a whole lot of people who have been like, Hey, I had this 10 year plan and you know, went perfectly. Everything went according to plan that like rarely happens. Right. Yeah. Because the things we're interested in 10 years ago are so rarely in alignment with the things we're doing today, but sometimes they are aligned. And when you find that thing where you can align them, it's like such a magical, beautiful feeling where you're like, Oh, I could do this forever. And I want to do this forever. Hence, I want to think for a longer time horizon. Yeah. And I also think it's really important to focus on the skills versus the journey. So mm. for example, like, sure, I could start talking about something different in six months or 12 months or 18 months. Maybe I find that my interests are totally changed. Maybe I don't want to, maybe I don't want to talk about anything, anything even remotely related to what I talk about today. Maybe I want to build a brewery, right? Like maybe something just changes. What I'm confident about is that I've been spending the last four and a half years acquiring the skills necessary to shine a light and to get some attention on things that I'm interested in. So a lot of the confidence in the journey comes from knowing that I'm spending time reading, studying, you know, talking with really smart people, building my network and those things, those sort of stepping stones or bricks of this journey allow me to feel really confident sort of no matter which way I go in the journey, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. What are the core skills from your perspective that you're building that you want to improve? One is um, a propensity to take action. So um, I was just having a conversation with my friend last night. They want to get started with content creation, but they've wanted to get started for six months and they just won't start. Everything's got to be perfect. They got to fix their headshot or whatever it might be. Right. And so like, for me, I just know the game is long and I know you can make a million mistakes. So like taking action towards something new, some experiment is something that I think is um, a skill worth having. I think communicating your ideas, your beliefs, and your strong opinions very clearly is a skill worth having. I think um, people call it copywriting. I don't necessarily think that that encapsulates the skill that I'm talking about. It's yes, part copywriting, but it's also part like understanding human psychology and being a very, very clear communicator. I think those are, are three things kind of wrapped into one, call them whatever you want, right? Written communication, if you want. And I think the other thing is kind of getting your ego in check is a really huge skill that a lot of people don't have. A lot of people have this, this idea that they've either a figured it out 
or B, they can't learn something new from someone who's not as far on the journey as they are. And I try and go into every conversation. I don't always do it well, but I try and go into every conversation saying like, I don't know. I still don't know a lot. And like every single person that I meet, no matter how old, how young, how inexperienced, how experienced, uh, has something really unique and interesting to share with me. So I think like collecting those nuggets along the way is a really great skill. There are so many others being curious, being autodidactic, being able to teach yourself. Like there are so many different things. Dan Coe, who writes a lot on Twitter, you know, always calls it kind of skill stacking. That's how I, I think about it is like getting 1% better at 17 different things all the time. And, uh, you blink and suddenly you're a much more well-rounded marketer, content creator, business person. And, and I love that, that sort of concept of stacking skills. That's really useful. When you look back on yourself and we look back to the panic attack you had in 2018 and you compare the person who's stacking skills today, it seems like two entirely different people. How, totally. how do you, how did you bridge that gap between the person who was in a job they didn't like or didn't feel fulfilled and, and the person you are today? I'm really lucky because, um, I didn't have to make a decision where I was like, Oh, I am going to leave my job in the future and then I'm going to become this different person. Like it wasn't well orchestrated. It was the f a function of being forced. Um, when I had a panic attack in December of 18, it was and lots of people have panic attacks. I had never had one. This one was pretty like, you know, nine one one, all the EMT guys came. Like I thought that I was dying. I knew that I couldn't go back to work. Like I ended up working a little bit longer, but like I knew that I had to make a very quick change and that I had to get out of the job that I was doing. So when I did that, it was like, okay, now what? Like, how do you make money? How do you make a living? How do you support your family? And so I ran like a hundred miles per hour into how do you build a website? How do you set up a payment infrastructure? How do you be a good SaaS consultant? What does it look like to work with a CEO? Like I, I, I was a CRO, but I had never done consulting for another company. And so I was like, how do I do all these things? So I just grabbed my network. I was in Revenue Collective. I was in a bunch of other sort of like, you know, SaaS uh, networking groups. And I started asking a million questions and put together what I thought was like a pretty good starting point. And I was fortunate enough to say, okay, uh, I'm pretty well known for building this company successfully. Let's go out and create more attention around that growth. Let's see as many eyeballs as I can get onto my face, my name, my website, and let's just build pipeline. That's what I did as a, you know, building a sales team. And so, uh, I just did all the things I knew how to do, but with a whole other part of this world that I didn't know how to do, which was like setting up my own stuff, building an LLC, all this different thing. So I combined the unknown and, and known and went as fast as I could. And when I left my job on August 1st of 2019, I had a good pipeline. I had like 10 prospects in the pipeline that were ready to sign a contract. And so there was never this like lull of like, holy shit, I'm not making any money. And you know, when you have a panic attack, I'm sure it's, it's not only troubling to yourself, but the people around you, friends, family, people who know you, how did the people around you help you live a, a life or wh what was their response and how did they, how did they contribute either positively or negatively to what you were doing in the rest of your time? Yeah. There, there's a lot of folks that, that helped. My wife is the most helpful. Um, it's cool because like my wife and I have been together for 11 years and, um, we have been successful. 
we have been unsuccessful together, right? So we've like run the gauntlet of like living in a studio apartment to like having a much nicer lifestyle. And so one thing that's really cool about my wife is she, she's like, Hey, if this shit all falls apart, like I get it. Um, it's much more important that you're like happy and healthy because we'll, we've always figured stuff out. So we'll always figure out things together. So like knowing that she was a, a part of my support system was really, really helpful. Um, my parents have always been extremely supportive. They're, they're not your traditional parents who like, um, tell you that you should do something or you should go down a certain path or just like, you're creative, do whatever you want. We trust you. We love you. We think you're going to be successful. And then a lot of the folks that were at my previous job at Patient Pop, by the way, great company, great job. I, I, I didn't need to leave because it was a bad place. It was just overwhelming for, for me. Um, a lot of those guys and gals started really supporting me on social media when I first came out of the gates. And like, it was really cool to see people that I was no longer managing or no longer working with or peers to like helping me get traction in that next step. And so around the circle, I just had a lot of support, which is, you know, really lucky. Yeah, it's beautiful. Speaking of your wife, one of the things you guys like to do is leave massive tips unexpectedly for waiters and waitresses at restaurants. We do like to do that. Are, Are there any particular stories that come to mind? of making someone's day that uh i because i bring it up because just uh it seems like an incredible practice when you're in a fortunate position and i always love watching those videos and seeing someone's day being made so i'm curious yeah. if anything comes to mind yeah it's funny i don't i don't remember having ever stated that publicly but that's good good research um uh yeah so i'm a sucker for like those channels too, where you like people go around and, and help, help people out. I like that kind of stuff. I was like, my, my mom's very charitable, very like, um, that's, that's just like my mom, both my mom and my dad, but my, mostly my mom has always kind of instilled that in me. But, um, we recognize every day that we're very, very fortunate. Like there doesn't, there's not a day that goes by that we're like, Oh, life is terrible. We're so unfortunate. Like we're very, very fortunate. And, one of the things that we like to do is we're big foodies. So we like to go out and eat. We like to go out and try great restaurants. And one thing that's always awesome is when you have both a great experience with the food, but you also have a great experience in the way that you're taken care of, how people serve you, how they treat you, how they welcome you. That That's just really awesome. And so when we have someone who we get to know really well or they, they get to know us really well, there's a place here. I live in Accord, New York. There's a place called Innis. It's a restaurant. And we know all the girls and all the guys that work there. And so we like when they do an awesome job, we like to surprise them. It's fun. Like I don't know how to say this without sounding having it come the wrong way, but like it's very meaningful for them. And it is – I'm in a position where I can do that. And so – I want to do that as often as possible because I think they're hardworking and the young girl, Becca is going to be a nurse. And like, she takes care of us all the time. She's 21. She's like so much smarter and better than I was at 21 that like, I want to make sure that she takes that next step in her journey as well. So yeah, that, that would be one that we did recently that we really enjoyed. That's beautiful, man. And how do you like, what, what was the impetus for like lighting someone's day up? Like, and how do you translate that to other aspects of your life? And how would you recommend people do that as well? Yeah, it's actually, um, and I neglected to mention a very important part of the story, which is like the reason that we think about that is my wife was 31 um, and she was a cocktail waitress in Chicago. 
And obviously there's absolutely nothing wrong with being cocktail waitress, but she tells a story with me where she says, I was always, uh, going to work at 5 PM to work a shift till like 2 AM. And I always got on the subway and all the guys were coming home in their suits and I was going to work. And I just wondered, am I ever going to make it into the corporate world? That's what she wanted to do. Mm. And in 2010, uh, the CEO of the first company that we worked at together called ZocDoc, it was a very small company at the time, it ended up becoming a unicorn, uh, had a table at her restaurant in Chicago. He sat down with a bunch of the, the guys and gals working for the team, and she took really good care of them. And at the end of the meal, he said, I want you to come work for my startup in New York City. And she had just gotten a new apartment with her boyfriend in Chicago, and she flew out. And they were like, interviewed her for essentially an office manager job. And she went from being a cocktail waitress to an office manager in like a week, and then worked her way up to director of global office operations. And so she managed three offices across the world, India, Phoenix, New York City. And like, it was just a chance, right? Someone just like recognized her ability and took a chance and did that. And so I think we we pay that forward a lot, Uh, you know, uh, so, so that's... That's one way that, that we kind of think about that. And I think just to kind of round out that question, the one that you asked is how do we think about that in other parts of the business? There's a lot of people who have successful businesses and successful brands on social media or wherever who are not very nice people. I've met a lot of them, right? And like you can always tell when you're sort of being looked down on or you're being treated differently. And so like part of what I wanted to build in my brand is extending sort of the Midwest values that I have being from Ohio into what I create in content, which is like transparent, um, nice, open, helpful versus like, um, somehow, you know, I got a lot of Twitter followers, like who gives a shit, right? Like, like, and somehow that makes me a better person. And so I think about that, uh, as I do my, as I kind of build my brand as well. I don't know if any of that made sense, but hopefully it did. It definitely did. Uh, what, what do you think about your wife was something enough where the, the CEO or, or the ZocDoc manager was saying, Oh, I want this woman to hire me. Because yeah, I, just, I think there's something really important there. Yeah, it's it's um, it's a focus on high touch, incredible customer service. She always mm-hmm. said um, she was a hostess, she was a server, like she had done all these different things. She worked for a famous chef named Charlie Trotter in Chicago, and like she had done all of the different parts. And one thing that we always talk about is you know, when you go to like a really great restaurant and the food is awesome, but you're not treated very well, the hostess isn't very nice or the host isn't very nice or the server's not very nice or it's not attentive. And it's like, it's two different parts. And so those people often kind of mess the experience up for the people who are designing their beautiful food or their tasty food. And so she always worked at a restaurant that did really nice food. And she's like, if they're going to make great food back in the kitchen, like it's my responsibility to make sure that I carry my 50% of this person's experience, which is how they get treated, how they get, you know, uh, you know, welcome to the, to the restaurant. So I think she's just always had that high touch customer service mindset because she just wants to be treated the way that she would want to be treated if she went to a restaurant like that. Mm, that, that makes sense. How do you then bring that to your business and bring yeah. the, when, 
at some point, it becomes impossible to respond to every single person. You want to give high-touch service to everyone who responds and everyone who replies. And I've heard you say before, you know, you don't like doing customer feedback in general or customer responses. That That's not where you find the most joy and fulfillment. And so how do you bring that level of attention to your business when it, the scale has become enormous? You can't, right? And that's that's part of the trick, especially being a one-person business, right? Um, so the way that I think about it is there's a rule of reciprocity. And it is, I can't return every message that I get from a random person. I get hundreds a day. I do nothing but return messages. But every once in a while, I get a message from somebody who has spent a lot of time interacting with me online. Um, they're a student in one of my courses. Um, they've done a lot of things that have been beneficial to me. And whenever I can, as often as I can, I try and be as responsive as possible. I try and give a quick tip, be helpful, shine some light on their business or their brand, do them a favor when they're least expecting it, write them a recommendation on LinkedIn, retweet something that they write on Twitter, something that will help them get some sort of traction or, or attention that they're, they're looking for in their, in their brand or business. Again, I can't do it with everyone, but in my opinion, you can't just show up <laughs> as somebody who is never been part of the ecosystem and demand a 90 minute, you know, consulting call. And so, uh, I try my best to be fair, um, while also being cognizant of my time. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, tell me a little bit about anti goals and, and why that would been such an important part for making 2022 one of your best years yet. Yeah. Um, so th those came out of a, a recognition of a second opportunity for burnout. So I burned out in 2019 or, you know, I had the panic attack late 2018, used that to kind of leave my job in 2019. And as I built my consulting business, which is what I first built after leaving my job, um, I didn't really know how to price myself. So being, you know, kind of ignorant to pricing, I was like, Oh, how much money did I make? in 2018 or 19. Oh, divide that by 2080 hours. Cause that's how many hours there are in a year and 40 hour work week. Right. And I was like, Oh cool. That's a pretty big number. I'd never really thought about that. That's neat. And then I went out and priced myself that way. And pretty soon you're working 40 hours a week to like do make the same amount of money, except you've got seven clients or 10 clients. And, and it's like, Whoa, all of a sudden, like I recognized that I was building the same life that I had built for myself as an executive at my last startup. Uh, and I was like, okay, um, something has to go, right? So I started to think about like, I started with the, something we talked about earlier, which is like, what are all the things that I like to do with my clients? Like, what are the things that really juice me up? Give me energy. I, I have a lot of fun with, and then let's go out and talk to all my clients and say, what do you like? What do you want more of from me? What are the things? And then look for that intersection. Things I like doing things my clients want more of, right? So it's like everything that aren't those two things I should stop doing. And so I was like, great, I'm no longer going to work with any companies outside of healthcare technology because that's what I know the best and that's what I, I have the most fun talking about. So away went 30% of my customers, right? I just cut, said, hey, I'm no, no longer working with non-healthcare companies, uh, but I raised my rates. So if you raise your rates, you know, if you double your rates and work half the amount of time, you make the same money. 
I could have doubled my rates and worked the same amount of time and made twice as much, but it's much better to get open gaps in your schedule. And as soon as I did that, I realized I could sort of control my time. So an idea of like an anti-goal isn't like, this is the goal I want to achieve. It's like, this is the stuff I don't want to do next year. And so once you ask yourself what you don't want to do, then you have to make like a a statement around it. Okay. I don't like working with non-healthcare companies. Therefore, I am no longer going to consult or advise non-healthcare companies. How are you going to do that? I'm going to update the language on my website. I'm going to be very clear. I'm going to update my URL. I'm going to update my business name to make it healthcare focused. So it's like a three-step action plan. And as I did more of those things, like more things crept in. I started coaching. I started doing other things. I was like, well, I don't like doing that anymore. I don't really want to run a Slack community. And so each year I kind of evaluate what are the things I didn't like doing the year before and how do I do less of those things? It may sound like a recipe for cutting a lot of revenue, but ultimately what happens is you open a ton of time and with that free time, you discover additional revenue. Yeah, that makes sense. And I I remember reading you had a a $15,000 monthly recurring revenue business in the Slack community, but Mm -hmm. you decided you didn't like doing that and you wanted to stop it. How do you create the conditions to experiment and try, especially when the outside validation might be, oh, people are one, really enjoying this. Two, it's helpful to them. Three, you're making money from it, but you don't want to do it anymore. Like, Where does yeah. that come from, that clarity of focus to cut something that's quote unquote working and go in a different direction? Yeah, I think it's interesting because I messed it up the first time mm-hmm. around. I I was like, oh, community, that's, that's what everyone's talking about, right? It's what you got to do. Um, by the way, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed a lot of it. There are parts of it I didn't like, um, but I was like, okay, cool. I'll launch a community. So I went out and I launched a community and I made it a year long membership and three to four months in, I was like, wow, this is a lot of work. This is like a lot of work. And this is very much against sort of my mantra of being able to do whatever I want, whenever I want with whomever I want. And it's like, now I'm tied to this 24 seven living, breathing community on Slack across 61 different countries. And so like every moment that I had a gap on my schedule where I would normally think of that as free time, it's now like, got to go into the community, got to record a video, got to record, got to write something, got to say something, you know, smart. Um, And so I was like, wow, I don't have any optionality here. Uh, So I was like, okay, I'm going to allow people to enroll in three month subscriptions because then I'm always 90 days away and maybe I want to build this thing back up. Maybe I could hire a few people or maybe I could figure it out, right? Maybe it'll change. Um, But ultimately what I found was that it didn't align with my values. Hmm. And the reason that I work for myself is so I can spend my time doing what I want and very little time doing what I don't and spend as often as much time as I can with my wife, going to lunch, taking trips, a community is a full-time job. And I had to be really honest with myself about that. And so when I was, I just said, Hey, I got to shut this down. Maybe I'll give it a try again in the future. Um, and that was a painful announcement, but I think everyone understood. Um, and yeah, away, away went the community and and the money and and all that stuff. But like, I'll, I'll figure out a way to, you know, do something different. What came out in the response to that? Like the free time that you had additionally from shutting that mm-hmm. down, 
what was the thing that got added that was beneficial and helpful? Um, I started a subscription. Um, uh, I started a newsletter, uh, which has grown up to 70,000 subscribers in 11 months, which is pretty sweet. Um, Congratulations. Thank you, man. Um, and I started a subscription email a newsletter that you can also pay for where you get some different products inside the, the newsletter. So, so that came out of it and that has already replaced the revenue of the community. But my goal wasn't to like see a free gap and fill it. Yeah. That would have defeated the purpose of what I was doing um, by shutting the community down. Instead, I saw a, a gap and I filled like 30% of it. And the other 70% is left to find another smart way to build my business, find another four or five hours a week to build a new product or just do nothing and go on vacation, you know, or yeah. take my lunch, my, my wife out to lunch. When you create space, it leads to more creations for the things that you actually enjoy doing. And right. what that, this is what I found in, in meditation, but I'm curious, like from doing this in a business setting, like where does that desire to lean towards creating more space for yourself? Um, I don't know if this is the right answer, um, but I think part of it is an age thing. Mm. Um, I'm not old, but I'm not your general 25, 26, 28 year old creator. I'll be 42 here soon. Um, I've achieved a lot of really fun and exciting things in my life. And I've been fortunate enough to be successful in business. And I'm also not a guy who needs like a big, huge house or a yacht or like a boat. Like I don't need any of those things. Those things aren't important to me. Um, the yacht boat house thing that a lot of like people strive for mine is different. Mine is time, friends, family experiences. And so think about those as almost like, the yacht, the house, and the boat, right? So I think of those things as riches. And because I'm a little bit older, I don't have anybody to impress. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've been successful. Like, I'm not trying to grind it out. I'm trying to like, I don't need to ever make more money in a year than I did in 2022. I don't need to scale. I don't need to two X. I don't need to five X. Like if it just stays consistent for the next 10 to 20 years, I'll be thrilled. Um, and I just want to spend that time doing things that bring me joy, which is family, friends and experiences. And I think that approach is so refreshing in a world where we have been trained and accustomed to admire the person who is seeking scale or seeking more or like that is so admired. And the reason why I bring you on today and the reason why I get so excited to talk to you is because you're valuing something different than what is put on a pedestal in society. It reminds me a lot of Derek Sivers, honestly. I don't know how familiar you are with his writing. And it's my favorite, favorite writer. Yeah. Makes sense because those are the, the things that you're talking about are the things that he values as well. And there's something really special about somebody who's living those values. Yeah. And by the way, like I fuck it up all the time. Of course. Right. That's part all of the, the process. Time. I, 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 I see somebody online who I assume is doing five times more than I'm doing 10 times more than I'm doing. And for a moment, or maybe sometimes for a day or even a week, I get 
kind of, I get really into that. It's, mm. it's not shiny object syndrome, it's shiny outcome syndrome. Suddenly I want somebody else's outcome. And I have to always remind myself that I don't need that. Mm. Like that's not part of, cause it doesn't, it doesn't make you happy. Like I talk about my, my wife and I used to live it in Clinton Hill in like a really shitty little apartment on Waverly Avenue, uh, in Clinton Hill, Brooklyn. And like, I always say we didn't have a lot of money. We weren't super successful. And I was like, I remember being happy then because I got to spend a lot of time with you and we got to do a lot of cool things and we lived in a really cool neighborhood. And like, as my business has grown, the money and the revenue in no way, shape or form is impacted on our happiness. Like, yeah, we can do more things and yeah, it's cool. It's cool to have less anxiety and less stress. So there, there's a positive there. So don't let me, let, let me tell you there isn't. Um, but it's not like I'm five times or 10 times happier. Yeah. So I guess, the question becomes, how do you get yourself out of the place of shiny outcome syndrome when you're looking at an outcome that someone else has? And how do you get yourself back to the present moment or back to the things that you value? Sometimes it's just time. Like you get it, you right. like do it for a week and then you're like, wait, what am I doing this for? And just recognition of a wrong choice or a mistake. Other times it's people. So, um, I, I am, I'm very like, I get very manic depressive. So there's sometimes when I'm in a really deep, dark mood and I can't get out of it, but there's other times where I'm like really excited about something. And when I'm really excited about something, like I'll talk nonstop and I'll do it for like days. Um, wow. and often when I get like shiny outcome syndrome, I get a lot of new ideas and I want to do things and like, I won't shut up about it. I'll tell my wife about it. And she's usually the one who's like, Hey, why do you want to do that? Like, can you, can you describe in depth, like the outcome that you want and why? And generally she's really good at bringing me back down to earth when I'm like hmm. focused on something or somebody, um, that I shouldn't be focused on. Um, and so it's a combination of like, sometimes it's self -rec recognition. Sometimes it's my wife. Sometimes I just work myself into the ground. I get really tired and I'm like, Hey, this is what you're not supposed to be doing. So you need to stop doing this. Is there an example that comes to mind? Is the community an example of, of when you no. got on one of these, like what, what would be an example? You know, there are creators, um, who I can see what they're doing. Like I see where they're going with their brand. Right. I think some of these creators that you and I know and are, are probably, you know, talk to and maybe, maybe a little younger than me, but probably around your age are like, they're going to be future politicians. They're going to be future CEOs. They're going to run huge venture firms. They're going to be a hundred million dollar people. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm plugged in with a lot of those people. Um, and I see them, right. I see that trajectory and I'm a human being. So when I see that, my natural inclination is to say, oh man, I don't really have a plan for that. <laughs> like, I'm just like, I'm out here just doing my thing, but like, you know, I don't have a plan for that. And so maybe I should, right? Maybe, Hey, I think I'm just as smart as that person. I think I'm just as motivated as that person. I think I'm just as capable as that person. Um, so therefore I should do that. Uh, but again, you have to sit back. And you have to think about why am I doing all of this? And if you remind yourself that you're doing all of it so that you can, you know, be with your family, so you can spend time with your friends, so you can travel and have experiences, 
those grandiose dreams require work that I'm not willing to do. Mm. And so I have to remind myself of that. Do you, like, what, why are you not willing to do the work? Because you want to spend the time with your family and with friends and... Because the ratio of work to income is what I'm after, right? Like mm. working 100 hours a week to 5x my revenue is a loss. Mm. Like what do I need 5x the revenue for? There's nothing that the revenue, 5x my revenue gets me that I can't get today that I actually want. And wasting the prime of my life, not wasting, but like spending it doing things I would rather not be doing in the very prime, what I hope is the prime of my life, um, with my wife and family around and my parents still alive is just a non-negotiable. Like I just, I can't wrap my head around that decision, even though I get distracted by it all the time. Like I have to reground myself and be focused on the things that matter to me. That's how I think about it. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. On the things that you value that you build your life around, you've said, you know, you do what you want, when you want, with whom whom you want, and you do very little of what you don't like and more of what you do. My question for you is how do you build in difficult challenges or difficulty or hardship in a life that is easy and you're trying to make it easy? Because I like difficult things. I think there's a, I think there's an inclination for people to say like, oh, that sounds really fantastical or childlike. I I write that online. And by the way, I know it's like, it's a polarizing statement. I know people are going to either like it or hate it when I write it. So I, I'm, I'm I have some intention behind it, but like, it's true. I want to do more of what I like and less of what I don't. I mean, isn't that what we all want? Um, but it's not, I want to do more easy things and less hard things. That's a different statement. And so for example, um, uh, it may not seem like it when I'm on something like this, or it may not seem like it when I'm at a a gathering with friends, but I'm relatively introverted. So I don't love 60 minute coaching calls. Uh, I just, I just don't like, it's just not, I would rather spend my time 60 minutes figuring out how to do something more automated or, or different. So like, it's not hard, uh, but I don't love it. So I stopped doing them. Um, now, uh, challenging things. Like for instance, I, there are two things I want to do. There are three things that I want to do in 2023 and 2024 that are extraordinarily challenging, um, that I have no idea how to do, um, that are hard. Uh, but I like them. I think I like them. And so I'm like going to go after and and try and accomplish them. Uh, so it's, it's, again, I, I always like to be clear with people that it's like, it's not easy street. It's, Mm a street where I'm doing things I like doing, not, not doing easy things all the time. If that makes sense. Yeah. What are some of those challenges or, or any you could share? Yeah. Um, I want to write a book, um, nice. which I don't know how to do and, um, is very, very intimidating, uh, to me. Uh, Why? that's one. Um, I'm not great with like, I was a good executive I was a very, very capable and strong sales leader. Um, but my competency there lies in hiring smart people, understanding automation and systems, but I was never a very good academic when it came to like being an executive, which means I wasn't great at like 
putting together business plans or scopes of work or like I always got outshined by the more senior executives when they had like Gantt charts and all this stuff that like my CEO was really impressed by. I just built the team that was going to win. That's how I did it. So I, I take a lot of that lack of competency into writing a book. A book to me seems like a very structured, very like academic approach to something. And I don't, I'm not strong at that. Um, Justin, those are those are two different things. Those are two different things. What you just just described, you know, being an academic in the salesperson role versus writing a book about something you know. Yeah, yeah, it it is. I think I'm not using the right word. Um, I'm not great at following instructions. Um, So, for example, like working with an editor, working within a framework, working within a confined structure, has never been my strong suit. I'm very messy. Um, like nothing I ever do looks pretty. And there's a very specific reason for that. It's because I'm not very good at that. Um, in, in the book, the part of that book that seems so challenging to me is like getting everything well organized and well edited and delivered in a pretty package. And so I'm considering self-publishing just so that I don't have to work within the constraints of somebody else. But I also recognize that that could be me avoiding a challenge. Um, so that's one. Uh, another thing that I'd like to do, and this is probably longer term and probably more of a hail Mary. So like, don't hold me to it, but I'm going to try and hold myself to it, which is, I believe we're on the cusp of seeing some underdeveloped nations take advantage of the creator space in a way that drastically changes, um, a large number of people in those countries. So like, Let's just take like take India, right? Take countries in Africa. Um, I think there's a huge opportunity for those folks to leverage the internet in a way that I do or you do or somebody else does to make dollars and drastically change their lives. And I think it's a matter of having access to um, people who have done that before. And, and I would like to find a way to go to those places and make an impact. And so, uh, that is just an idea right now. I don't know how to do that. Uh, but I've been thinking about it quite a bit. I, I heard you mentioned that on another podcast and it, I it seems super yeah. exciting. Well, where do you think that desire for, for, to help people you can't see physically, like in a different country, I assumed you weren't raised in, I, you said you were raised in Ohio. So mm-hmm. it's like, what compels you to feel so deeply for those people who are in a different place or country or that you haven't been to? I don't know that I feel so deeply Mm. about those specific people. I could say that I did and it would be good, good podcast material, but it, it probably wouldn't be all that truthful. Um, what I do feel is that I get frustrated. I don't want to take this in, in, in a strange direction, but like, I get frustrated when my wife's from El Paso, Texas. It's on the border of, of the United States and Mexico. And she was born right on the border. And like there are people born 500 feet to the south who have significantly less opportunity. Mm. And to me, that's just crazy. I think yeah. that's wild. Um, it is what it is, but I think that's crazy. And I just think it's a very random luck of the draw. Like I was born in Cleveland, Ohio to parents that were middle-class who were still together. 
yeah. lucky, right? Like, um, I don't think it's an excuse. I think a lot of people have hardships and I think people have to work their way through hardships and that that's also pretty, pretty challenging. But like, I would like to try my best. I don't have kids, so I don't have like somebody to impact, you know, that, that in my family other than my immediate family. But I think if I'm going to do something good, it would be to try and make the statement that I just walked you through a little less true where it's like, it's a little less about where you're born or to whom you're born and more about democratizing access to success. We are yeah. never going to all be starting on the same yard line in life. It's never going to happen. It's a, it's a utopian idea, but we can make it, we can make an impact. We can make it easier for people who are raised in places that are generally a little bit more underdeveloped to have a really awesome life. Um, my wife also managed the Indian office for ZocDoc and she got a chance to know a lot of those people. And then through that, I got a chance to know a lot of those, those people and, um, just good people. Yeah. <laughs> I'm painting with a broad brush. I'm there's terrible <laughs> people everywhere, but like they're good people. Like I, yeah. and, it, and I just want to give people access to, to change their lives. I think that'd be cool. Yeah. I don't that, have a better answer awesome. than that. <laughs> no, it, it makes sense. And it also, it also points to, I think someone was like, why don't you just make your courses more expensive? And you're like, well, I could do that, but I also want to help as many people as I can while also making profit, but also just really, really trying to make it affordable and accessible for people in terms of how you price your courses. Yeah. I, I use purchase power parity for every country in the world. So if you visit my website from Pakistan, the course isn't 150 bucks. It's like 30 bucks, right? If you visit from, you know, uh, South America, South Africa, it's going to be 60 bucks. If you visit, for, I'm just making these numbers up. I don't know the exact right. percentage of Spain. It's like, you know, 80 bucks, something like that. So I, I use this service called parodydeals.com um, that provides my, my products at a, a, a more relatable price because like, do I want to make money? Yes. Right. Like uh, I'm not, I'm not mother Teresa. Right. But like, uh, what do I care? I recorded it 18 months ago. If somebody buys it for 30 bucks, who gives a shit? Like yeah. it changes their life. I make a little bit of money. I hope it changes their life. Right. I make a little bit of money and like, it's a win-win. Yeah. I, that's really cool that you have that. You said it was parodydeals.com. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Cause I'm, I'm considering building a, a video course myself. I'm podcasting everything I've, yeah. I've learned about reaching out to guests and stuff like that. And I, I think it could be really valuable for people since I get asked all the time about, you know, how do you get this person on or how do you do this research or what all the, the back end stuff. And so I'm curious from you as somebody who's now built the courses himself over the past three years, like what, what recommendations do you have for someone like me? Who's just on day one of that journey? Yeah. Uh, there's a couple things. Number one is people, when they buy a course on podcasting, they probably don't want to learn everything in the world there is to know about podcasting. They want to go from point A to point B, whatever those points are. And my, I guarantee that 90% of the people who buy it, point A is I don't have a podcast and I have no idea to start. And Point B is like, I've started a podcast. I understand how to invite guests and I understand like how to select technology and get started and have a somewhat decent podcast. It's not like Gary Vaynerchuk's not going to buy your course, right? Like people who have a hundred podcast ep uh, episodes aren't going to buy your course. And so 
what I always think about is like, what is your target market? And so your target market is probably much more beginners than you initially anticipate. So that's like number one. So cut fluff, right? Take away the, you can use some advanced stuff or whatever, like if you got a few folks, but like just help people get from, I don't know how to anything about a podcast to like, boom, I have a podcast with 10 episodes and I'm really pleased with the, 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 the quality of it. That, that's number one. Number two is don't make it like seven hours long. Um, I've found that like I have a three and a half hour course and I have a 65 minute course. The 65 minute course has three times the completion rate. It's shorter. It's easier. It's, it's, it's just easy to get through. Cause I always start off and say, put two 45 minute blocks on your calendar right now, right? One this week, one next week, get this thing done. Cause buying it doesn't work. Doing it actually does. Um, the second thing. And then the, the third thing is create it like a theater play. So if you've ever been to the theater, there's like act one intermission act two. And the way that a theater play is structured is a lot of the action happens in the beginning because you want to get people excited into the play, right? You want people to be like, oh, this is really cool. This is really funny. This is really whatever. And then right before the intermission, like there's a big like, ta-da, we're going to show you something crazy that's going to happen at the end of intermission. So you go out to intermission, you talk with your friends, wow, this is really fun. And then you come back and you get the cliffhanger and you you finish. So the, the way that I think about building a course is... In the first half of the course, act one, you want it to be exciting, big information, cool ideas, because you want people to be like, damn, I'm 15 minutes into this thing and I've learned a lot. This is really great, right? And then at the intermission, right before the intermission, you want to sell the second half of the course. You're like, if you think this first half is great, wait till you get to the second half. In the second half, you're going to learn A, B, C, D, E, because you want to sell them to completion, because completion is how your students get better, right? So at the, at, at the intermission, you can also say like, leave a testimonial, join my affiliate program. You have a million things to do, but really what you want to do is sell the second half of the course. And then in the second half of the course, you want to deliver on all the promises you made in the first. And if you do that, you have generally high completion rates. Average course completion rate, 13.8%. So very low, right? My course is anywhere between 40 on the low end to 60 on the high end. And it's because I like to follow that sort of theater play uh, framework. Oh, that's really helpful. I'm going to rewind this and play it back. And I'm super excited in terms of pricing. What what would you recommend? Would you just say, follow what you do or, or like, how would you think about that? My pricing is very unscientific. Uh, the way that I've thought about pricing is what is a price that I would like to pay if I were trying to buy this course? People always ask me like, what's your take on pricing? Like hire pricing experts, like bring McKinsey. And it's like, no, I just like, <laughs> what do I think is a fair price for this product? Um, and so I came out up with 150 bucks for my product for a reason. This is the reason it's not $9, right? So like if it's nine bucks, everyone buys it. No one watches it because it's like, Oh, $9, who cares? Like threw it away. Right. $150 is in my opinion, both affordable enough to make an impulse buy. So if you see it and you're like, I think I want this, it's not $5,000. Right? You don't have to take a loan out, right? But you'd be like, yeah, I'll throw this on a credit card or whatever. Like I've got 150 bucks, I'll, I'll grab this right now. So it's affordable enough to make it an impulse buy, but it's expensive enough where like, you don't really want to waste 150 bucks. You kind of want to get your money's worth, right? Um, but it's Trojan horse as well. So like if it's $150 and I deliver $15,000 worth of value, I get a large quantity of people from all over the world I give them an affordable price point and then a course that crushes in value, 
right? They're like, damn, this is worth, I've had people be like, this is worth a hundred thousand bucks. It is amazing. And I'm like, that's awesome. But it's Trojan horse. Now I have 15,000 people in my install base and someday down the road, and this comes back to thinking about it as a long-term journey. When I do release a premium product, that is $2,000 someday, like, at that point in time, I'll probably have 50,000 people who have bought something from me and got incredible value out of it. If I release a $2,000 product and 10% of 50,000 people buy it, it's 5,000 times 2,000. I am not a good mathematician, but I think that's a really good one day or launch program. <laughs> um, and so that's how I'm thinking about it long term. Yeah, th that, that makes a whole lot of sense there. I, I'd like to change gears real quick and talk about writing. And... You're an incredible writer. It's quick. It's informative. It's easy to understand. It's helpful. And I look at that. And I'm like, wow, like that is, that is a, a writer that I really appreciate. How do you personally create the best conditions for writing? Well, that's a good question. Um, well, I think the first thing that I do is I try and think about, so first of all, thank you. I don't always think of myself as a, as a good writer. So it's really nice when someone says that I am. So I appreciate it. Um, I, I think I create the, the good conditions by recognizing when I'm generally better at something, which is like the morning I'm not, I get tired about two o'clock every day and like, I'm pretty worthless past two o'clock. And so I used to like try and do all my client meetings in the morning because like I wanted to be peppy and excited and like and then like I was left to write in a time fr uh, frame of the day where I didn't feel very energetic. And I also am really great after a workout. Like workout gets the endorphins moving. The whole world seems possible when you're on a treadmill, right? You're like, oh gosh, I can change the world. Like and then you get off and you're like, wait a minute, it's almost like you know, it's just a very weird experience. Uh, so what I've decided to do and decided to do maybe 12 or 18 months ago is, um, I go, I get up early. I have a lot of coffee cause I love coffee. I go to the gym, I work out really hard and I get home and I get on the computer by about 11 and, or maybe 10 30 sometimes. And I have like 90 minutes of uninterrupted writing. Um, on a high from working out, I'm filled with coffee, right? I don't have any food in my system yet. So I'm not like dragged down by a sandwich or something. Right. So that to me is like really great. I have an office closed door, headphones, lo-fi beats, um, espresso when I, when I start writing and I try and give myself 90 minutes because that's all I really need to like create content that's helpful for me because I have a whole system of how my content gets repurposed and replenished to different, different platforms. So like if, if you give me 90 minutes, I can generally do a, a newsletter on, on Monday or Tuesday, and then I can do five to 10 pieces of content on a Wednesday or Thursday. And then that content gets repurposed to LinkedIn and it gets kicked out to the future. And so the more content that I create, I'm actually filling my future 2023 and 2024. Um, successfully as well. And then what do you think is something that people who have been writing on Twitter for a while, but aren't seeing the results that they want? What is one thing you think they're doing wrong or they might not understand? Two things. One is if you write every day and you're not getting better, it's, you're not doing the second part, which is like, Yes, writing is helpful and you generally get better at writing, but a lot of people don't analyze or ask themselves like, why did this do well? Why did this do poorly? Why um, 
did this thread fail and this thread, which was very similar, you know, do really well, right? You have to constantly be analyzing your writing to figure out what works. And your job is to replicate what works as often as possible. So I think that's one. I think number two is they don't recognize that social media is a, is a multiplayer game, right? Like I'm going to blow your mind here, everybody, but like the big accounts that you see all support each other, right? It's not, it's not a hidden secret, right? Like you see the big accounts all con- like, of course that works. They have huge followings, right? So it's helpful. You can't do that when you're just getting started where you don't have a lot of traction, but like get a group of friends, Get people together and say like, Hey, you guys all want to grow on social media. Let's all support one another. Like it's not going to be powerful day one or day seven or day 20, but like day 730, it will be powerful because you will have all grown. You'll all be growing together. You'll all be supporting one another. Engagement will go up. Like that is absolutely critical. Um, I I'm always very transparent about that. I grew to link, I grew on LinkedIn without that, which is hmm. no lie. Just being very candid. Um, but I noticed on Twitter, I got to about 70,000 without that. And then at, when I eclipsed 70,000, I noticed that a lot of bigger people started like coming around and liking my stuff. And that has certainly been helpful. Right. Um, so hopefully I didn't blow the, the big cover of, uh, growth. <laughs> well, I, one thing that I uncovered in my research was that when you said, I want to go from LinkedIn to Twitter, you downloaded the history for mm-hmm. some writers that you enjoyed reading. Yeah. I think it was like Dan Coe or Dickie Bush or Sahil Bloom. And you were like, what do they do well? And what were they like? Well, how were they tweeting at certain points in their history? Because if it worked mm-hmm. for them at this point, it'll probably work for me as well. So I just thought that was a fascinating concept. It's just like, see what works and, and just do it yourself. How did you, what was the logistical steps to actually do that? Advanced Twitter search. So here's what I did. Um, It was all prompted by uh, a blog article from trends.co where I I was not on Twitter or maybe I had just started. I don't don't remember the exact time. It might've been like a month in or whatever, but like this article came out on trends.co. It's like how Sahil Bloom went from zero to uh, 500,000 followers in one year. And I was like, damn, that's fast. And it was like, well, he, he uses these templates it's in the trends article. It's like, he uses the one-on-one template. I'm sure he doesn't do this anymore. This is him years ago, but like he goes back to the well on certain things. Hmm. That's what we just talked about earlier. You have to like analyze and see what works well, smart move by him. Um, but I thought to myself like, Oh cool. They broke down what he did on his trajectory, not what he's doing today. Cause he can be like, I like dogs. Right. And people will be like, people are gonna like that. yeah, 10,000 likes. Right. Um, so I was like, okay, if you can go back and you can break down Sahil, well, you can go out back and break down Dickie and you can go back down and break down Dan Coe or uh, Nicholas Cole or, or whomever. So I picked like five or six people that I liked and I just went to advanced Twitter search. I used the date functionality. I t- turned off replies and I just searched and I went as back as far as I could go with each person to see like when they started getting traction. And it's pretty cool because if you look at my traction in year one, what a lot of my writing looks like are, are those guys, right? Mm-hmm. It's similar style, similar format. Um, cause I was trying to do what I thought would get me traction. If you look at the last six months, it's my style. It's me mm-hmm. writing the way that I generally like to write. I just needed to borrow 
a, a cheat code to try and get the audience there. And now I can be myself. And that's why when people today copy my content and post it on their own Twitter, it doesn't work for them because I had to do all the legwork for, for eight, you know, 12 to 18 months before that would happen. So, um, yeah, that's what I did. How does it feel then to go back to the style that you would naturally do? Like, like how good. does it sit with you? It's good. Yeah, <laughs> it's great, man. Like, um, you do know, you wish you did that from the start. Yeah, no, you're happy. probably. Yeah, I, I think I think it would have been probably slower. Um, maybe not. Maybe people like my style, right? I don't, I don't know the answer. Like, I seem to be getting good traction. People seem to like it. Like, maybe that would have been faster. I, I don't mm. know. Um, but I like writing in my own style, right? I I I, know, I don't consider myself a creative. I don't consider myself um, artistically viable. But like, it certainly feels good to write the way that you think about writing. Um, it's nice to be authentically yourself all the time. Um, and so, yeah, I probably wish I would have done that. I, I think it, it could have worked. Hmm. Yeah, I think so. If, if the last six months are any indication, uh, um, kind of switching gears here. Why is Harry Mack your favorite creator? Oh, wow. That's a really good call out. Um, uh, you're like the Nardwar of uh, podcast hosts, if you know who that is. Um, uh, because he's at the top of his game of, any, of more so than any creator in any industry or any um, of anything. He's just, I've never seen someone work on a craft for so long um, and get so good at it that it's almost unfathomable how good they are at the craft. And so like, I've been watching him for probably five years wow. and um, if I go back, I thought he was awesome five years ago. Yeah. And now you go back in time five years and you're like, oh, this sucks compared to what he is now. For, for those of you that don't know, he's a freestyle rapper. Um, and I just like his, he comes out with a new video every Friday and it just brings me an immense amount of joy. Um, I love watching people go from being like, this is going to suck to like, this was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And yeah. I enjoy watching people get joy out of that. So that's why like, I watch every Friday when it comes out. Wow. That, that's so great. You know, it's funny because I, someone turned me on to him, Jonathan Bales, about a year or two years ago, and I went on a binge, couldn't stop watching it, and it was incredible, and I'm so grateful for it. But then I tried to reverse engineer, why am I so fascinated by this to a level that I'm not fascinated by most things? And it, it's because it is communication on display at the highest level. And what I'm doing with this podcast, what I'm doing by researching and learning about writing, what I'm doing when I'm watching sports is seeing how people communicate and then trying to understand it better. Like I, I really view myself as a student of communication and this is the communication master at the highest level. That's what music really is and freestyle to that level. So yeah. how, how does that land for you? Yeah, I love that. That's a really good encapsulation of, of – I, I like – I'm a big fan of like reaction channels. I like that's like my tra my trash TV. Um, I, I get a lot of joy out of watching people feel good and like witness something really amazing. I like to see them light up. Like I've just I don't know. I was just always kind of like that. It's just it been, been been something I like. It's the same reason I like Nardwar, the the uh, the interviewer for for like musicians and mostly rappers and things like that. Because like it's interesting to see some person pull up to an interview. And like assume they're going to get the same questions per usual and get like 
the deepest, most personal questions ever. Um, I always enjoy watching them enjoy that. Um, so yeah, I, I like craft at a high level. Yeah. Because what Nardwar does is it gives insight into the person that they didn't even realize they could gain from themselves in that moment, which is like right. giving them the ultimate gift of learning more about themselves. It's remarkable. Yeah. You have a 2023 prediction. More high performers will view one person internet businesses as a viable option alternative to traditional work. More flexibility, high income potential, 100% ownership, and the ability to be present for their partner and children. We've been talking about it all podcasts, and I think you're absolutely right. What is going to um, propel this shift to the next level from your perspective? I think the impact of the pandemic has not yet been felt at its highest level. Hmm. Um, I think where we're going to feel that impact is I think a lot of people during that, whatever time frame, uh, got depressed, uh, drank too much, uh, just became different people. And I know that happened to me, right? That, that definitely happened to me during, during the pandemic. And I assume that if it happened to me, that it's probably happening to others, it's happening to my friends. I think the fallout from the depression hasn't necessarily been seen quite yet. I think it will be seen as people go back to work in higher quantities and there are fewer employees. People are struggling to getting laid off. And like the people that are left are these high performers and these high performers are going to shoulder a lot of the workload, a lot of the pressure. They're not going to be fully recovered from two years of hell and they're going to start burning out. I think that's going to happen. I think when you combine that with the rise of the solopreneur on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on YouTube, on TikTok, wherever, Instagram, wherever, I think people are going to look and say, if one customer, my company will pay me for my services, why wouldn't a thousand customers pay me for my services? And they will recognize that by getting some attention, by studying the way that they do at their current job, by applying themselves the way they do at their current job, right? That they will get good at that. Being, being good on the internet is no different than being good at work. It's just, you gotta care, you gotta wanna do it, right? And they'll figure out that they can do that. They'll figure out that they can spend more time with their wife or partner or husband or kids or whomever is most important to them without a 35 minute commute, without a $40 lunch every day, without, Hey, I know it's seven o'clock and you're having dinner with your family, but I forgot we need the board deck by tomorrow. Like those things will be no longer things they're willing to put themselves through. And so that's my prediction is that that will happen for high performers. And that will also have an impact on companies because companies will struggle to retain high performers and therefore companies will start filling their seats with average performers. I'm already seeing it. Call a customer service line today, Hmm. have a problem. Like the ability for people to solve the problems that I have has reached almost zero. And like, it's frustrating. Hmm. Um, and I just think that will continue to happen. I'm sure it'll change at some point, but I think 2023 will be a big year for that. That, that statement and that, that answer just fired me up so much 
I don't know why exactly. Like just because it, it feels like the power is in your hands to make a change, and you eloquently describe that so well. What's I like to end these podcasts with a challenge. A challenge for people. You listen to the podcast and you take the information and then you do something in your day-to-day life. Does a challenge come to mind from either the things we've talked about or the things we haven't to help someone live a better life? Hmm. Yeah, let me give that some thought. Um, I think that if I were to give people a challenge, it would be to take one idea that they have that they're planning to do sometime in 2023 and take one step of action towards making that idea a reality today, right? Like you want to launch a course, you want to start writing online, you want to build a service business, you want to write a newsletter, you want to start a podcast. If you want to start a podcast, go buy a piece of podcast software, grab a microphone, send your first invite to somebody. Just do it all today, right? Mm-hmm. Who fucking cares if it doesn't work? Like, it's not the end of the world. You'll get, you'll learn something from that experience. Want to write a newsletter? Go buy, get a Substack and get a title and a logo in Canva that you make in 30 seconds. Name your newsletter, write your first newsletter, make it three minutes long, publish it. Who cares if nobody reads it? Send it out on LinkedIn or Twitter and say, hey, everyone, I wrote a newsletter. Someone will read it, right? You will get better for having done that. You will be better for having done that than if you do it on April 15th of this year. And maybe there's people who feel the opposite. Maybe there's people who are like, oh, you should plan and you should have this. Fine, but what? To me, that's that's just procrastination dressed up as perfection. Right? Oh, I got to get everything perfect. No, you're actively procrastinating. So, like, just do one thing today. I think that's a cool challenge for people to hopefully take part in. It's beautiful, and I I wholeheartedly agree and endorse it. Justin Welsh, you could find him at the Justin Welsh on Twitter. Anywhere else we should send people, or any closing thoughts from you? Yeah, if, if people want to learn more about me and how I think and what I do, they can go to justinwelsh.me. That's Justin, W-E-L-S-H dot M-E. I say a lot of things. Sometimes I'm right and sometimes I'm wrong. So take it all with a grain of salt. (laughs) I love it. And those are linked below. Thank you so much, Justin. Thanks, Danny.